This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Randall Monroe is the man behind the XKCD comic. Some of you don't need to know anything else. To some of you, that name might draw a blank. He is also the author of a new book whose name is much more self-explanatory. It's called What If 2? Additional Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. Welcome, Randall. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Randall, thanks for adjusting your schedule. We're going to do this in person. We're doing it remote instead. I want to talk to you about a bunch of things, but we'll talk about the book first because it's new. For the people who don't know who you are, don't know what XKCD is, how would you describe the book to them? Because the people who know who what XKCD is are going to go buy your book. I don't need to tell them to buy the book. For the for those folks who haven't uh, read or don't even know, they probably have read XKCD. They just don't know. What, what is the book? It's sort of like a, a Dear Abby for people who want to crash planets into each other. <laughs> um, so uh, people send in like their most ridiculous science questions, and then I do my best to you know figure out a real researched answer, and then uh, solve it you know using science and math, and then write up my explanation and illustrate it using uh, my stick figure comics. These are these are great questions. Um, I mean this with the highest praise. It's a great bathroom read because um, it's full of, of questions like, can someone make a sword out of air? Can all of the world's bananas fit inside all the world's churches? Can you use a magnifying glass uh, and the moonlight to light a fire? You've got a question about the daily caloric human intake for a modern T-Rex in New York. What was the most difficult question for you to answer there? Some questions are trickier than others. um, And some of them send me down like weird rabbit holes. The first question in the book is about uh, what would happen if the solar system was filled with soup out to Jupiter? And this question I love because it came, it came from a five-year-old named Amelia. And I find some of the best questions come from kids because they'll ask very direct, straightforward, you know, questions where they're not trying to be, you know, clever. They're just like, here's a thing I thought of. Let me ask you about it. This is a fun question because the basic calculation is really easy in, from like a physics point of view. You can just work out, like if you divide a couple numbers together, figure out if you put that much soup or anything, you know, like the density of water in one place, it'll collapse into a black hole. And so, so right away, I sort of had the answer to what would happen if you filled the solar system with soup. But then doing all the additional calculations to figure out, like, how would the soup collapse and what would it be like if you were unlucky enough to be trapped in it? Uh, that involved a lot more interesting calculations that bring in, like, relativity and, like, pressure changes in fluids and figuring out, like, how long could you survive before the soup crushed you? And then what would the effect be on the rest of the galaxy? They're just like endless, uh, uh, like little rabbit holes that you can get sent down while researching these scenarios. You're, you're smiling now, um, which you guys can't see because you're listening to podcasts. And but the book has this sort of deadpan sort of description of of what would happen, and in many cases, the answers to your questions are you, the human, would die, or all of humanity would die, or the entire uh, solar system gets sucked into a black hole. It's a weird balance between sort of 
and you've got these these great stick figure uh, illustrations. So it's on the one hand kind of fun and lighthearted and and taking a five year old's question seriously, which is a fun exercise. And then it's often very grim. Is that something you're conscious of trying to balance? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely like there are, there are some questions where you can get really morbid into research. You know, like when someone was like, oh, here's a scenario in which people would die horribly, but exactly how would you die? What would it be? You know, and it's like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to dive into research that's going to make me sad, I guess. So I like kind of thinking about the big picture kind of uh, action movie view, you know, uh, where you're not, uh, you know, I don't want to get deep into like anything, anything really grim, anything where like animals get hurt. I'm always like, I'm not going to really, I'm not going to look into that. I don't want to spend my time thinking about that stuff. Beyond the novelty of, of you trying to, to figure this stuff out and the novelty of oftentimes answering these absurd questions, is there some bigger idea you're trying to get at? Or is it just an exercise for you in taking this stuff at face value and answering it uh, in the most realistic way possible? Well, one thing I really try to do is show how you can be confused by stuff and not know the answer to something and then like proceed through and like figure it out using these tools. So like I have a background in physics and one thing that I really notice about doing, you know, academics uh, and like spending time around other people where, you know, your, your whole identity is built around like understanding things and knowing things is you get really insecure about like insecure about revealing that you don't know something. And so like when I get asked a question, I get nervous, like, is this something whose answer I'm supposed to know? You know, if it is, how can I like quickly dodge like revealing that I don't know the answer? And what I like about these ridiculous questions is that like nobody knows the answer off the top of their head because most of the time they're questions, you know, that no one has really tackled before. And so it's okay to be like, all right, where do we start in figuring this out? Whereas if, you know, the, if someone asks me like, hey, what's the mass of an electron or like, uh, what's the you know, weight of a bottlenose dolphin. Like those are numbers that I'm, I feel like, oh, if I don't know these off the top of my head, like I have a physics degree, I was supposed to learn the, the electron thing. Whereas if you're like, hey, how much do all the electrons in a bottlenose dolphin weigh? Like no one knows that. So it's okay to be like, okay, well, we gotta go uh, look some stuff up here. We're gonna have to try to figure this out. And I like showing that like, like I like trying to give people permission to, you know, reveal like what stuff they're confused by and to ask weird questions and not worry too much about whether it's uh, ridiculous or confusing or strange. That's such a useful answer. I mean, I was thinking uh, even before you said this, this is the kind of book I wanted to put in front of my younger kids, not because I want them to do this math, but I just want them to sort of get their brains thinking about ways they can do problem solving. But I'm also interested because I was exactly thinking about the stuff you're talking about, the, the, the not knowing and not being an expert and giving you permission to not know something. The flip side of that is you then give yourself permission to figure stuff out. You're obviously very smart. You're literally a rocket scientist. You worked on robotic navigation at NASA after college, but it doesn't mean you know everything. So how do you go about figuring out these complex answers and then how do you feel about presenting those answers saying, well, this is the answer. I have come up with the answer to your difficult question. Um, obviously, no one's going to go act on your advice. You're not going to figure out how to feed a T-Rex. But do you feel any um, unease about sort of presenting yourself as an expert because you've now done sort of basic research on something? 
Well, so, I mean, first of all, by no stretch of the terminology, am I a rocket scientist? Uh, you know, I, I worked on robot navigation in, uh, you know, all inside a building. Nothing I was building goes up to space. You know, I'm, I was giving myself a little liberty there, but OK. Yeah, I, I, I stretch it to roboticist is OK, partly because it's just a fun word. I think it was like invented uh, not that long ago. Um, so when I approach these questions, I'm not necessarily thinking about like, how do I convince people that, you know, that they should trust me that this is right. Um, I'm going into them thinking like the questions that I pick for my books, they're ones where I want to know the answer. And that's really my criteria when I'm reading through the questions people submit. Is it like, is this something where I don't know the answer, but I get hooked? I've always had this tendency, you know, and I make fun of it. It's, you know, a, a common thing that like, someone tosses out a puzzle or a problem and regardless of whether it's like relevant to what we're doing it can totally derail me as i get sucked into being like hey wait i think i know how to answer this you know uh hold on let's you know and, and then and then like five hours later i'm like oh shoot what were we doing again um and so so what i try to do here is show how i go about solving these you know to my own satisfaction and knowing when i post this stuff anything that I post, like any area that I write about, there are lots of people out there who know more about that stuff, you know, that area than me. And I have to assume some of them are gonna like come across it and and read it. And so I, I, I think that's what keeps me the most, uh, uh, you know, careful is just knowing that like, I have to answer this to my own satisfaction. And also I may have to talk to people who really know the right answer. So I want, I just want to be confident that I'm not going to, you know, embarrass myself in front of them by, by being too, uh, you know, fast and loose. That idea of, I know some stuff, but mostly I know how to figure stuff out. I know how to ask the right questions to the right people. I'm confident in sort of basic math and science. And thus, I can figure out stuff that I haven't been trained in. Um, to me, that represents a lot of sort of the the best of sort of, I don't know, we'll just call it Silicon Valley thinking for a long time. Um, I remember being exposed to people like that at an early age. And, and for a long time, those were sort of heroes, those people who could confidently sort of polymaths, right? They could jump from idea to idea. And during the pandemic, that got underlined a bit where you had people who had no experience in epidemiology or something, but who were able to actually convincingly explain what was going on with the spread of the disease. But you also had folks who similarly didn't know about epidemiology or, or viruses or whatever, confidently explaining why a certain um, drug should be something we use. And again, this is not what you're doing in your book. You're not prescribing anything. But um, I do wonder if you've thought at all about sort of the rise of, of that sort of especially because the internet has sort of amplified those voices, what it means to have someone like say rhymes with Elon Musk, you know, talking about uh, depop you know, the reason why we need to populate the earth um, or whatever it is, instead of constraining himself to talking about uh, cars. Do you see a kinship between what you're doing and what you see other people doing on the internet when they're talking about stuff that they're not formally trained in? You know, that it's really a tough balance. The idea of like, you know, everyone should stay in their lane and only talk about stuff that they're not experts in or like and never talk about anything unless they're like a credentialed expert in and like avoiding, um, you know, kind of credentialism to the point that it can become harmful. Uh, and that I think that's a balance that, you know, 
that's just going to be hard to strike no matter what. When you were describing though the the that quality of like you know not 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 necessarily being a trained expert in any one specific thing but being good at asking people the right questions and conversant in the basic parts of the field um what immediately came to mind for me is that that's not the best of silicon valley that sounds like the best of journalism to me i am occasionally so impressed by like the work when you'll have like someone there was a thing recently that the washington post i think did where they took data from a study of bird feeders and did this like huge analysis of it to show like what um you know there was a paper on like what birds can push other birds out of the way at the bird feeder like who's the what's the pecking order as it were you know and they and they built this like visualization where they did their own analysis of the data and they did it in like two days and there was a one of the scientists who was involved in the paper wrote about it and was like oh wow these journalists are really impressive like you know you you see any expert you'll hear criticisms of like how their work is covered in the media but i think that's that's sort of sort of inevitable like anytime you you have an area that you know really well people covering it from outside are going to not be as much of an expert as you but that kind of work that you know science communication and journalism work is really important and really good and it's important to get right and so like in all these cases i think that there's no easy answer other than like you have to develop a sort of a moral and professional compass about how willing you are to listen to other people and take responsibility for the things that you make and that you write in the end we're all just people trying to figure stuff out and so sometimes i'll think i shouldn't write about this you know i shouldn't talk about this because there are experts out there who know it, you know, better than me. But then at the same time in a lot of cases if I don't talk about it to someone maybe no one else will. And is that necessarily better? How do you go about explaining these complicated answers? Um you, you literally work in stick figures in your day job and the and the book has stick figures in it too and the obviously there's more text um but it's written for lay people to understand. How have you trained yourself to communicate complicated ideas so that a lot of people can understand it? I think one of the hardest things about, I don't know, explaining things, almost explaining things in general about teaching people, at least in my, my experience, um, is that it's really hard to remember what it's like to not know something. Like once you've learned something, it's hard to remember uh, how it felt to approach it when you didn't uh, know that thing. Like, I have no idea what it felt like to try to tie my shoes before I knew how to tie my shoes. Maybe there are exercises you can do to figure that out, like try to tie them behind your back or something. A good answer to that question, by the way, is is to try to teach a kid. Because um, <laughs> it's totally not yeah. intuitive for a kid to tie their shoe, as I found over the years. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so... What I'm always trying to do when I when I write about this stuff, I'm not really thinking of of you know, here's a person who doesn't know the stuff I know. How do I this get this concept across to them? Because I think it's really easy to slip into um kind of being condescending or being like I need to I need to make this like less I need to make this simple for their simple minds to understand. And like that's not that's not good. That doesn't um that doesn't work well 
partly because no matter how much people understand about the topic you're talking about, everyone can tell when they're being condescended to. Um, so what I try to think is I, I think about I think about myself, you know, I've, I've done all this work to figure this thing out. Any research will involve like tons of blind alleys, tons of, um, you know, you go down a rabbit hole of research and it comes up, you know, you don't come up with a rabbit. I don't actually, I don't know where that rabbit hole metaphor <laughs> comes from exactly. It's probably Alice, right? It's probably Lewis oh, Carroll. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. That, that's, that makes sense. I was thinking like, was there, is it like a hunting thing or what? But no. But I don't um, know, by the way, it could be something else. What I try to do is when I'm going into these things, I try to, to think, okay, I've just done, you know, 12 hours of various research rabbit holes, trying things, some of them worked, some of them didn't. And I finally figured out, okay, you can, here's how I can prove this to my satisfaction. You know, I've got this, this answer, this answer, and then you can put them together like this. And then I try to think, okay, if I were able to go back in time and save myself all this work, like, I don't want to have to do all this over again. How do I give myself like a, a Cliff's Notes, like a cheat sheet to walk me through this um, without all of the steps that turned out not to be useful? And so I try to think about when I when I didn't understand this, what were the things that confused me and like try to address those? And sometimes that means thinking about myself, you know, a few hours ago when I had no idea about this thing. But then sometimes the thing I'm explaining, parts of it I've known for a long time. And so I think back to my, I try to think back to like me as a little kid, what would I, before, right before I learned this, like, what do I wish I knew about it? And how do I condense that down as much as I can? And, but, you know, that's, that's hard to do. Uh, but I always try to think of it as like, I don't think of it as I'm talking to someone who who doesn't understand things as well as me. I think about it as I'm talking to someone and I want to save them time. Like they're busy, they have a life to live. They don't have infinite attention for this stuff. I want my my work in trying to understand it to then help save them from having to do the same thing. It's super useful and something I think about all the time. So thanks for that. We'll be right back with Randall Monroe, but first a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. Let me talk about XKCD. I was saying that some people, maybe a decent chunk of, decent percentage of people listening to this don't know what that comic is. I think that almost everyone who listens to this podcast, which is pretty nerdy to begin with, has seen one of your strips. But to, just to level set, explain what XKCD is for our layperson. Yeah, XKCD is a comic that I draw. I've been posting it online for the, you know, uh, something like 15 to 20 years. And so it started when I was in college. I was studying physics and I would be doodling stick figure uh, drawings in the sides of my notebooks, also drawing like diagrams of things, graphs, charts, and generally just filling up pages with doodles while I was listening to, uh, you know, lectures. And so at some point I started scanning in some of the ones that I liked that sort of seemed like little comics and putting them online. And then 
discovered there are a whole bunch of other people out there who who wanted to to look at them who like found the same stuff funny that I did which was a really really cool experience getting in touch with all these people from all around the world um were you posting online from the get-go or are you distributing it some other way at the beginning no I mean some of I was drawing them in my notebooks and just showing them to friends you know in in person or mostly not showing them to anyone uh just working on them for my own entertainment but at some point I started posting them online. I had put them in a folder on my website, just as a bunch of, you know, JPEG images that you could scroll through. So then I could link those to people. And then I found people, you know, linking them, some of them around to each other. And so I made, I was like, oh, if people like these, I can, uh, I can make more of them. And in fact, I'll put up a, a page where you can kind of browse them. And I had, re I read a lot of comics. I had until then, I had never really thought of myself doing one. Um, because I, I drew stick figures and all the cartoons I read growing up were, you know, in this very classic cartooning style. So it kind of caught me by surprise that people would be excited and 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 want to read these. But it was it was really cool. You post these on your website, but you you have a, a Creative Commons license. Basically, anyone can 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 post these themselves as long as they're not trying to make money from it. Do you know how big your audience is and do you know who they are? I don't really, I mean, like for, for different reasons, it's always been kind of hard to count that, like in different eras of the internet, people consume things different ways. So it's hard to keep track, but I also, I don't know. I try not to think about it. I, I don't know if I'm just like kind of shy or something I like, but it feels like it can easily get to you. If, if I really think about like how many people are going to read something that I post that, uh, you know, makes me not want to post anything. And so I try to I try to just I, I always just think of it like I'm I'm drawing some stuff for a couple of my friends, you know, they're going to hopefully laugh at it. I remember when I first found it, it was someone in tech was sharing it with me. And I thought, oh, this must be a thing that tech the coders know about. And XKCD must be some some sort of software in joke or something that I don't get. And that's who that is for. It turns out XKCD doesn't mean anything. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I I was on so I noticed from early on in using computers and using the internet that you kept having to pick usernames and then type them a lot. And so like I was on uh dating myself here. I was in, at age 9. I remember I think I was using AOL in 1993 and I had to pick a username and so I would pick names from things that I was, you know, interested in. Like I know for a while I was Skywalker four on AOL and then and then I got into like Animorphs and so I was Animorph seven, but then every time like my interests changed I would change to a new name, and then I was like okay I just should just pick a name that's not tied to my interests it's just a cool sounding word and so I like picked some cool sounding words and tried those, but what sounds cool to like an eleven year old doesn't sound cool to a fourteen year old. And so sometime in my mid-teens, I was like, what I need to do is just pick a spot in the space of like all four character or three character strings that no one else is using. And then I'll just claim those letters, but I'll try to pick something that's like as neutral as possible so that it won't have any pre-existing meaning attached to it and make it short so that I can type it a lot. And I had a few other criteria, like I wanted to pick a string that um, where none of the letters looked like any other letters when they were uppercase or lowercase. So that rules out um, O's, which look like zeros, and like I's and L's can look like ones, depending on how they're capitalized or each other. 
And so I went through this criteria, ruled out various letters, and I didn't want it to be a, look like a pronounceable word or have any obvious acronym expansion. Like, so people would look at it and not attach a meaning to it, you know, instinctively. And, and so I, and then I looked for ones that weren't registered on the couple of services I was using at the time and, and uh, hit on XKCD after trying a few of them. My sense is, is that your audience still is predominantly sort of tech oriented people. Is that your sense or, or do you think it's much more diverse? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know beyond sort of it's people who are, you know, vaguely like me in some ways. Like, I think, you know, it's 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 there are a lot of people who like when I do when I when I do these events, a lot of the people, a lot of the people I meet were in graduate school. Like they're not necessarily like uh, uh, in the tech industry, but, you know, like working a lot of scientists and, um, you know, mathematicians, teachers a lot of astronomers and um, people from the science world. There's there's a lot of that. Can we call them with affection nerds? Sure, okay. sure. That, you, I'm, I'm sure most of them would uh, embrace that label. And then when I started doing What If, especially, I really wasn't, I didn't have kids in mind, you know? I wasn't thinking like, oh, this will be a good, this will be good for, for answering kids uh, questions about the world. You know, because, uh, but I, I guess I didn't, really realize the the notorious like little kid constantly asking why kind mm -hmm. of questions that you get they're sort of very similar to the kinds of things i tackle so especially in what if 2 what i found was a lot of people who read what if 1 and had kids of their own started sending me their kids questions where they're like my kid asked why is the sky blue and and then i tried to answer but it turns out you know boy this is more complicated than i thought <laughs> Uh, so here's the question for you. <laughs> and those are fun. That's where I get some of my favorite questions in this new book is people sending me questions from their kids. Or occasionally there will be science teachers who are like talking about something with their middle school class. And then the kids start egging them on by making, you know, asking weirder and weirder questions. And at some point they're like, all right, I'm not I, I don't have this answer. But how about we send this off to uh, to what if and. I think some of the most some of the most alarming questions come from middle school science classes. That sounds right as well. So you don't know how big your audience is, partly because it's hard to count and partly because you don't want to count, but it's big. Do you have a sense of what your most popular comic, either strips or you know thematic series are based on like feedback? Um, there, there are ones that people will reference, uh, you know, all over the place that I come across. Um, and so it's hard to say, you know, if something takes on a life of its own and gets shared around in some corner of the Internet that I'm not even aware of. Um, but the ones I think the ones that uh, to the, the extent that I could measure it sort of got the most attention. There was one I did a few years ago, and I actually worked on this for, for you know, the better part of two years. But it, it was a chart of the timeline of the Earth's temperature over from the Ice Age up until now. And my idea was I wanted to explain, you know, you hear people say like, well, okay, cli the climate is changing right now, but the climate has changed before. And so the implication is like, it's sort of, so it's nothing to worry about. It's very natural and normal. And they're right that the climate has changed before. But what I wanted to show was sort of the, the scale and pace of the change. And so I made a really, really tall graph that you could scroll down 
And as you scroll down, you see it weaving back and the line weaving back and forth, representing the Earth's temperature, starting in the the during the last ice age glaciation, and then the temperature rises, the ice withdraws, and so as you scroll down, the temperature slowly rises over about 20,000 uh, 20, years. And then right at the end, you see the last hundred years of temperature change, where it's it's shot up by another degree, you know, which is a big, uh, uh, you know, on the same scale as the change since the ice age, which was about four degrees. And I tried to make that, you know, as vivid a description as I could, because this data really, like, I was trying to figure out how do you get across the pace, the difference in the pace of this current change, and how it's different. Um, and so I made this comic, and I was if 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 one thing I was going to do was going to get sent everywhere, I'm really glad it was that um, it got shared all over the place. You know, I got a bunch of scientists to help me put it together originally, and then um, it got shared all over the place. And um, and I heard from a lot of people who like wanted to use it to illustrate this idea, or you know, had hadn't realized how how dramatic the current change was. And so that was really really gratifying. Have you ever found anyone intentionally or maybe just unintentionally not getting the point or using your work to make a point that's the opposite of what you were trying to make or use it in a way to support something that uh, you find icky or deplorable or, or worse? Yeah, I mean, now and then um, someone you know, is like, all right, I'm going to use this on my album cover and my songs are all about and it's like something I don't. Mm -hmm. Oh, this person doesn't sound great. But I, I just, <laughs> I try to, that's like par for the course with the internet. Like you can't go police. Yeah. Everyone's posting everywhere. But I really find people, I really feel like the people who, who I do run into who read my, my comics are, there's just, they, I don't know, tend to be kind of nice people, <laughs> like earnest and responsible. You know, it, it's it it hasn't been a, a big problem. I know there are, there are some people who have had their work co-opted by by uh, you know like scary internet movements or whatever, and and I've managed to dodge that, and I'm I'm grateful for that. You had one about free speech that I saw a lot in, mm -hmm. at, the, at the end of the the Trump administration for obvious reasons, and the point is, hey, the free speech is is the right. It means the government can't prevent you from saying something, but all the consequences mm -hmm. that come from your speech that's on you. And if someone wants to boycott you or kick you off their internet platform, it doesn't mean you're being denied your rights. It just means you're an asshole. They're showing you the door, and so I would see that all over Twitter. Um, and I agree with all of that. And I'm the kind of person who says the First Amendment is about the government's right to prevent you from speaking. But, but I am increasingly interested in the idea that these massive platforms, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, um, they're not the government, but they're global and they're not kind of controlled by anyone except a few people. And, and being kicked off a platform, it's not being denied free speech, but it is being denied something. Um, and in some cases, you do have governments actually sort of helping or forcing those platforms to make those decisions. Have you revisited that idea at all? I sort of agree with both my comic and everything you've said there. Uh, you know, that's um, the question of what role these giant tech companies that have this incredible amount of power should play in the general world that we're building. And like, how much power we should give them and how much power it gives to other people if we limit them in certain ways. Like it is complicated stuff. And I don't 
know the right answers, you know? Like there, there are a lot of really smart people writing about this and talking about this, um, trying to figure out what the best way to, to set up our society around these, uh, these platforms is and what's the be- what, what things should we hold them responsible for and what things shouldn't we, and um, you know, what should we be okay with them doing uh, and and I think that that there is no easy answer there. You know, there's there's there is like you said the sort of literal like here's what the First Amendment is about, but like there's plenty of stuff that is in line with the First Amendment, but it's still not stuff I think is good or stuff that I think we should necessarily allow. You know, so I think there's room there's room for there's room for a lot of uh, a lot of nuance there. Let me end by asking you uh, more concrete stuff. Your, your your business model, your day job is is making XKCD. XKCD is free. It's on your website. You allow anyone to distribute it as long as they're making uh, they're not making money from it. Um, I think you you support yourself with t-shirts and merch and and books. And maybe 10, 15 years ago, you would have been the 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 prototype for what everyone sort of in Silicon Valley and tech thought about the way media businesses should work, that you should put the stuff out and not worry about making money from it because you can distribute this stuff as, as cheaply and easily as you want um, and somehow make it up some other way. And that has worked for you. And then there's recently been this Web3 movement to sort of say, no, no, we should figure out how to how you can make money from the distribution of your work. Have you ever played with different business models or have you sort of you're happy with the way things are now and you're happy to put your work out for free and then sell associated stuff. Um, there are people who have experimented with, you know, different ways of, of, you know, creating content where you pay to subscribe to it. Then there's, there's endless sort of discussion about, about micropayments and, you know, Patreon type things. And, but I have, you know, I've sort of shifted to, uh, uh, I didn't do books for the first sort of half of my, my career and now that's you know a big part of what I do. That's I'm I'm talking to you about this this new book, which is in stores now, as my publisher would want me to mention. I think early on, it wasn't always obvious to everyone that like it was really important to have people sharing your work around. And so people would ask, like, oh, you have a lot of visitors on your website. Where do you advertise it? You know? And I was like, no, I, it's not really how you know this is like 2005, and people just didn't didn't the concept of things going viral was still pretty novel. And so nowadays, uh, nowadays that's a lot more familiar to everyone. And, and it's a lot clearer why like people like YouTube creators, you put your stuff on YouTube and you don't like make it so they have to click and pay to view it if you want to get big on YouTube. But I don't know. I'm, uh, there, there's there, so no one, no one came to you in the last couple of years and said this should be an NFT or what if, what if you could, you know, turn this into a collector's item and that way people would also promote your work because they'd have a financial stake in it. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would count myself as a, as a, as a real skeptic of a lot of that technology. There's the the problem of like whenever someone approaches me with something like that, they're also you know, trying to get me to sign on and like endorse the platform they're suggesting. So even uh-huh. if it's going to make money for me, you know, they're doing it because they can they they can get something from me. And especially trying to, um, I really don't like, uh, you know, like I feel like there are all these cool people out there who who read my books and my comics and I don't want to sign on to something that, and like endorse something uh, and use that trust to try to 
you know, to leverage that for some platform or some, you know, uh, a tech project whose whose basis I don't really uh, uh, believe in. And a, a lot of the blockchain stuff, I'd say, falls into that world. What a wise and thoughtful answer. Uh, Randall Monroe, uh, it was really delightful talking to you. Thank you for coming on. I will promote your book for both your benefit and your publishers as well. Again, it's called What If 2? Additional Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. And I think you should go buy one right now. Thanks for coming. Hey, no, thanks so much. It was great talking to you. Thanks again to Randall Monroe. You know, sometimes you imagine how the interview is going to go, and sometimes it works out exactly that way. And that was one of those. That was really fun to talk to him. Thanks to Jelani and Travis for producing and editing. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing this show to you for free. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Recode Media. And I was just looking at the schedule for the rest of the fall, or at least a good portion of the fall. And there's good stuff coming to you. Some bonus episodes. You're going to like it. We'll see you soon.